lot of fun uh, this week. Uh, we've been doing a bunch of different things. One of those things was Night to Shine on Friday night. It was just incredible to see so many people from Discover Church being a part of kind of a prom event for people with special needs in our community so that they would feel valued and loved. It was just an incredible time to be out there. And you guys paid for all the food, and that was cool to see as well. And if giving is part of your worship experience, the way that you do that at Discover is we have boxes in the back where you can give or you can give online at discover.church as well. But we are so thankful for you, for those of you that make things like this happen. So we're going to be wrapping up. We're in the last week of our Connecting the Dots series. And it's been a great series for me. Some people have been coming up to me telling me what the Holy Spirit has been doing through them in this series and thanking me for that. I have nothing to do with it. I am on the journey with you. I am learning alongside of you. It's a great opportunity for, for all of us who maybe who have gone through some of these things and some of these lessons before to be refreshed about what all of this means. And I know that God's got something great for us today. What we're going to be talking about today is something that we all have and must deal with. And if any part of this series has spoken to you at all, a lot of this is greatly influenced by an author named Peter Scazzaro and his books. Um, he's written Emotionally Healthy Relationships. He's written a book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. I would challenge you, if, if you need to grow in some of these areas, to dive into those books. But it's built around this truth. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It's not something that we can do. You cannot say, I know Jesus and I'm becoming like Jesus in every way, even down to my bones, and still be somebody that flies off the handle all the time. So it's time for us to kind of connect the dots between what Jesus says in John 10, 10, that I have come that you might have life and have life abundantly and start living in that life and start growing up in some ways. And today we're going to be talking about how to fight well. And nowhere in life is your emotional intelligence, is your emotional maturity more on display than when you are in conflict. You might have been able to coast your whole life thinking that you're an even-keeled kind of person, but the moment that there's a conflict, <laughs> who's got cats? I don't know. That happens like once a month. It's going to be an exciting Sunday. Don't ever wear one of my jackets. You know, I sneeze in these things. Uh, so anyways, you know, I think it was Abraham Lincoln who once said, you don't know the, the, the nature, value, and strength of a man until he is at war. And that, that's the same truth for us. We don't know really our emotional health until we're in conflict. And again, no more is it more on display than we, when we are in conflict. And if you're really brave... You can go up to somebody that you were recently in conflict with and do a little bit of an audit. Ask them, poll them, say, what's it like being on the other side of an argument with me? What's it like being on the other side of a conflict with me? And let them tell you, ask that coworker that you were recently in a conflict with. Ask your spouse, ask that friend, what's it like when, when we are in conflict together? Because in conflict, we see what's really going on when it comes to our emotions. And before we get started today, I just want to say very clearly up front, again, that we're talking about conflict and reconciliation, and I want to make something explicitly clear from the beginning, um, that when we get through this message, again, we're going to be talking about these things, but domestic violence is a real thing. 
And sadly, in Christian communities, domestic violence is still a real thing. And we're going to be talking about going back to relationships. And some of us have experienced violence and abuse in a relationship someone you may know may be experiencing violence and abuse in a relationship. You may suspect that somebody might be experiencing that in a relationship. And your safety is our first priority. And so I want to draw attention to an organization that we've done a lot of work with. We work with every year. We support them financially. We support them when we do our I Love My Town projects. And that's REACH. Um, and so I've put some of their phone numbers up here so you'd be able to contact them. You can text them. You can call them 24 hours a day. They're a great organization that do tremendous work supporting people who have experienced domestic violence. And I love, I love, I love to work with them. And your safety matters to us. The safety of your children matters to us. And there's some of us in this room who simply cannot go back to that kind of a relationship because it's dangerous and it's abusive. And I don't want you to go back to that kind of relationship because you think, it's the Christian thing to do. We want to support you if that's where you find yourself. We want to resource you. But today we're going to be in Genesis 32 if you have your Bibles. Pretty easy to find. It's right in the beginning of your Bible. We're going to be starting in verse 22. Um, and I'm just going to read this for us together. So what I'm going to do this morning, it's going to come off a lot like teaching. And then I'm going to get into some preaching. So I just want to kind of give us our text this morning, it says in Genesis 32, starting in verse 22, it says, That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you, bro unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. In chapter 33, verse 1, it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants and their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near that they, they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in your sight, my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. 
for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Let's pray together. Father, we're just so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for what it means. And we're grateful that you're in this house today, God, to do some very big things. God, I pray that this morning you would increase our faith, that you would change our life. God, we're not here today to do simply human things. God, we're expecting the supernatural to go down this morning. Father, some of us are here in pain. We're struggling and we need an encounter with you. And Jesus, you've come to meet us. You've come to do significant work in our lives this morning. And God, today I pray that you, would violent, that you would silence the voice of our enemy. God, I pray that you would slay some demons up in here, that you would break some chains that have kept us from that freedom that we need to experience in our life. And we pray that you would make a difference for generations. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to conflict, what we're doing in conflict is we're bringing all of our life experiences, we're bringing our family of origin, we're bringing our memories to that conflict. And some of us, we move all over the place to escape those things, but wherever you go, there they are. They're with you your entire life. And if I were to do a poll today and I would ask you, how many of you this morning were mentored by your parents to do conflict well, I think that we'd get kind of a a mixed result in this room. But the reality is we've actually all been mentored on how to do conflict from our parents. Some of us, when it comes to the conflict that we've seen in our life, we've seen some conflict go down really, really well. We've seen some really positive outcomes when it comes to to conflict, and we've picked up some really great tools in our life. But for most of us, that wasn't your family story. That wasn't your experience growing up. Some of us, what we saw in our homes growing up was actually a lot of silence. You didn't see conflict. Or maybe you saw conflict, and it was extremely violent, and it was abusive, Whenever there's a disagreement in your life, you feel like it's dangerous and it's unsafe because of the house that you grew up in. And all of us have picked up something along the way when it comes to our relationships. And what I want to do today is I want to talk about what it means to fight, what it means to fight well. And before we get in what it means to fight well, I want to talk to you about what it means to fight dirty. Because before any boxing match, before any kind of mixed martial arts fight, you have to agree on the rules, that there's no poking in the eye, there's no biting, there's no punching below the belt, there's, there's no, none of that kind of stuff. And so when it comes to our conflicts, what are some of the, the rules that we can agree upon when it comes to healthy conflict? Because maybe you found yourself in a fight with somebody or in a conflict with someone, you were like, whoa. Where did that come from? You kind of had an out-of-body experience and you found yourself doing things. You saw some reactions, some responses, and some behaviors, and you almost felt like you lost control because it's almost like a reflex for you. And there's that, that person says this, and without even thinking about it, you respond like this. Again, it's almost this out-of-body experience where we see ourselves and we're thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I acting like that? Or maybe for some of us, you go completely silent and you withdraw and you want nothing to do with conflict and you're trying to get away from it and you become completely paralyzed and you even ask yourself, why am I paralyzed right now? And maybe at the end of of all this conflict, it's only been hurtful and it's been painful and it's been anything but redemptive. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves before we get into the rules of fighting dirty is why 
do we resort to fighting dirty in our lives? And professional fighting, I know a lot about professional fighting because I don't know if you know this, but I don't know anything about fighting. But anyways, when it comes to professional fighting, the reason why people often bite dirty and bite the earlobes off the person they're boxing is because they feel outmatched. They feel outmatched and so they resort to dirty fighting. When it comes to us, one of the reasons why we resort to dirty fighting is quite simply because of shame. If we're honest, it's because of shame. We fight dirty because of the shame that we feel in our life. We feel embarrassed. We feel filled with shame because of our own behavior. What, what, what we don't know, what we do with this fact that we feel bad about we, what we did or said is the fact that we are very bad about processing shame. So we feel the shame in our life. We don't process it in a healthy way. And we fight like we're a cornered animal. And we use shame to punish people. We just, we say to people, we say certain things to people so that they will feel bad. And if I can make you feel bad in a conversation, if I can shame you in a fight, then somehow I have gained control in that. And I say things like, don't act like a baby, or you're just helpless, or what's wrong with you? And I roll my eyes and I sigh because I want you to feel some kind of shame. Shame changes the way that we view people. When we get in a fight with someone, especially if it's someone that you love, you can start even thinking, because of that shame, why did I ever think I wanted to be married to you? You can get in a fight with a friend, and you could be asking yourself, I cannot believe that you are my closest friend. And you bring up all this negative stuff because of shame. Our anger rises, our perspective changes, and we can't see a person for who they are because of shame, and we fight dirty. So I'm going to give you some fight club rules and to be honest, this is just my list. You can come up with your own list of fight club rules, but this is, this is mine, and I think this is a pretty good list. We go through this when we do premarital counseling. So here they are. Number one, no name calling. When you get in a conflict with somebody, don't be like, hey, you're stupid. Hey, you're an idiot. Hey, you bozo. You know, we don't do that kind of stuff. And I'm trying to use PG names, all right? You don't, you don't start calling somebody names. Call them by their name. And if you start calling them names, that's... That's a, that's a problem. And the Bible tells us to not keep records of wrong. It says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no records of wrong. So number two for me is don't keep a record of wrong. When you get in a conflict with somebody, don't go, well, in 2015, what you did right here was you said, and I documented it, and I journaled it, and I have it right here, and then you did it again in 2018. And see, this is a, this is a common problem for you. Don't keep records of wrong. Just attack the problem that's right in front of you. Don't keep a record of wrong. Also, one of my biggest annoyances is don't use always, never statements. When you use an always, never statement, it almost makes people feel belittled. It makes them feel unseen. When you tell somebody, hey, you never take out the trash and you're always on your phone. What happens in those moments is they immediately get defensive because that might not necessarily be true for them. So don't use always, never statements. Also, don't get physical ever. No pushing no slapping, no grabbing an arm hard, no pushing up against the wall, no hitting. Don't get physical ever. And if that's part of your story and you're trying to get over it, in fact, I would recommend this for everybody, especially in a difficult conversation with the spouse. With your friends, it could be a little bit weird. But if it's your spouse, hold hands. Don't get in a conflict with your friend and be like, here, let's hold hands. All right, listen. Um, that's not how it works. But when it comes with your spouse, Hold hands, because when you're holding hands, like you are connected, you are, it's, it's more of a loving conversation, and you're not doing stupid things with your hands. Uh, number five is don't poll the audience, especially in-laws. 
And you've been on the other side of this before, and it's extremely annoying. Somebody's bringing up a, a, a grievance they have with you for the first time, and they say, uh, all my friends agree with me that you, or I've talked to my coworkers about this, and they feel that you, and what's worse is when you go, I talked to my mom last night, and she says that you, and so you've been polling the audience before this conversation happens, and again, it just puts somebody into a defensive mode, and it's really not good, and that is a great way to fight dirty. So those are my rules. You can add other things to it, and I would strongly suggest that you sit down and be like, what are my Fight Club rules? What are the things that really get me out of the space that I need to be in order to have a healthy conflict? So we're going to talk about different conflict styles right now. Because all of us have different conflict styles, and I think it's important for us to name them in a way. And the first one is winning. If for some reason you have tied your identity to the fact that you're always right, when you get in a conflict with somebody, you could care less about that relationship. And so you attack them in order to win. You dominate them in order to win. I kind of want you to almost imagine as we're talking about these things about um, a tennis match. And if you play a tennis match with somebody who is constantly spiking the ball, I don't know, if that, I don't know anything about tennis. Anyways, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not good. And some of you have been on the other side of somebody who has a winning conflict style, and some of you are that person. And number two is honestly the most sneaky and dangerous one, and that's to withdraw. That's when you are either so scared about conflict, it makes you so uncomfortable that you withdraw, or sometimes you do it not because you're uncomfortable, but to punish the person. You give them the silent treatment. I'm not going to talk to you for a day because I want you to feel it. And the problem is when we withdraw, when we put that distance between us and somebody, and we say, I want to put some distance between you and me, when you do that on purpose to shame them, there's something else that fills that space. That space is not empty. That space is filled by your enemy. And everything that you believe you want that person to feel, your enemy is standing in that space telling you you're right. They're a terrible person. You should never have married them. This is, this is the thing and this thing. And our enemy is a deceiver and a liar and he fills that space. If you're, if you're putting some space there because you're afraid of your reaction... So you want to put some space between their action and your reaction, that can be a healthy thing. The difference is the intention. If you're putting some space there to get them to feel bad or use it as a tool to make them feel shame, that's a bad thing. If you put some space there so that you can come back to this conversation in a healthy way, so that you can resolve it and there can be redemption, that's a healthy thing. But withdrawal can be a very big problem. I just hope you understand the, the two differences. You can take some space, just don't do it for the, right re the wrong reasons. So then we've got compromise. And what compromise does is compromise is somebody who gives a little to get a little. You've heard of that before. It's like, uh, I'm going to meet you here so that I can get what I want from you. And so we compromise. Some of us think of that as like a good way to resolve conflict is I'm going to compromise. You're going to get a little bit of what you want. I'm going to get a little bit of what I want. But to be honest with you, the best way to resolve a, a conversation or a conflict is to resolve it. And what does it mean to resolve it? How is it different than those other things? What it means to resolve a conflict is that an attitude or a behavior actually changes. That is the point of conflict. The, the, the point of conflict, the goal isn't to be conflict-free because that is ridiculous. And if this is your first time at Discover Church and you're like, I am so happy to be at a church that doesn't have conflict, we are going to disappoint you. 
Because we all have different backgrounds. We all have different family history. We all have different families of origin. We all have different values. And when we have healthy spirituality, it's not that these things are eliminated. It's that our particular approach to dealing with it is different. People who are willing to resolve conflict, the Bible calls peacemakers. Jesus, in a famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, 9, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is telling this huge crowd, this melting pot of people, these people with all different backgrounds and values, what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. But then 16 chapters later, Jesus is overthrowing tables in the temple somewhere. He's made a whip and he's whipping people. So what's going on there? Is Jesus not taking his own advice? Is Jesus on the mountain feeling the Holy Spirit? And in that moment, he's like, blessed are the peacemakers. And he goes in the temple, he's like, well, forget that. And he's throwing tables everywhere. Is that what's going on? What's going on here is that Jesus knows the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper desires to keep peace by avoiding conflict. Doesn't want to get anybody upset. Doesn't want to rock the boat. Doesn't want to get on anybody's feelings. And, and they just want to live with something that's obviously wrong. They want to live with something that's obviously toxic as long as they don't upset the apple cart. But we're not called to be peacekeepers. We're called to be peacemakers. Jesus, just like Jesus, we're some, sometimes we have to disrupt a false peace. A peacemaker is willing to resolve conflict, is re- willing to confront outer turmoil in order to create a real lasting peace with others and themselves. And sometimes disrupting false peace, entering into conflict in a healthy way, is actually a catalyst in your life that is going to bring you closer to the purpose and the destiny that Jesus has created you for because you were willing to go into that conflict. Too often we see conflict as a nuisance. If I can just get out of this conflict right now, I can get on to the real business of life. But it's actually in conflict that something actually changes in us. Our relationships changes, our, the world around us begins to change. There are some Enneagram 8s in this room who are like, that is the truth, preach it. I just want conflict all around me. The truth is, if we're running from conflict, if we're annoyed by conflict, if we're avoiding conflict, what, we're, what we could be running from is the actual thing that Jesus wants to use to change us to be more like him. What if conflict could be redemptive? What if it could be a beautiful, healthy, and healing thing? Jesus went to the temple to change it. That's why he went in there. He disrupted a false peace in order to bring about true peace. And I'm not trying to create an army of people that go into their Super Bowl parties and throw tables this evening because they were promised buffalo chicken dip and it's not there and you're a liar and you're throwing tables everywhere you go. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to create vigilantes who go out into our world and just start disrupting peace everywhere and says, because Jesus told me to. You need to realize and remember that Jesus used his harshest words for religious leaders. The only table that Jesus overthrew was in a temple somewhere. Jesus sat and ate at far more tables than he threw. He ate at tables with sinners so much so that the religious leaders were outside murmuring amongst themselves. He was called in a derogatory way, a friend of sinners because he sat and ate at their tables. On the night before he died, he shared a table with Judas who would betray him. He shared a table with what some might call his enemy. 
and all for the purpose of reconciliation. So check yourself. So how do we enter conflict well? How do we do this well? How do we have these conversations well? And again, it's really important for us as Christians, people who say we follow Jesus to do conflict well, because that's one of the ways that we show our testimony. Somebody might say, hey, that was a really interesting disagreement there. Do you know Jesus? Just because of the way that you handled that conflict. So I want to teach us a little bit how to fight well. So when it comes to fighting well, ask for permission. Ask for permission. Ask, is this the right time to have this conversation? You don't have that conversation during a football game. When they're watching Tennessee lose a football game, don't come up to them and be like, and they're a Tennessee fan, be like, hey, can we talk about this right now? No, that's a bad time. Tonight during the Super Bowl is a very bad time. Late at night for a lot of people is a very bad time. Do not have that argument on the way to church. Don't wait till you get to the porch of your life group host home and be like, hey, by the way, uh, you stink. And have that argument right there. When you're dropping off your child at school and you have to have a difficult conversation with them, a lot of times there's, there's not enough time in that conversation for you to fully resolve in a redemptive way something, that you're, something about your child's behavior. When they get to school, all they're thinking about is that conversation that wasn't finished. It might be the right thing, but the wrong time. You need to ask, can we have this conversation? Secondly, you need, you need to use the phrase, I notice. I notice that you're giving me advice I didn't ask for. I notice that the rent is late. I notice that there's still dirty dishes in the sink. Hey, I, I, I notice that you're on the phone the entire time we're having a date night. I notice concrete behavior, not I noticed you're an idiot. That's not how that works. So you notice concrete behavior, you call those things out. And then once you notice it, use the phrase, I value. I value. I noticed the dishes weren't done tonight. I value waking up without having a chore to do first thing in the morning. You know, I, I, I value that we spend time together on our date undisturbed. I value paying rent on time because I value being responsible. And I believe that that's the responsible thing to do. And oftentimes when there's a conflict, it's just because we have different values. In my home, I am the only person in my home. Malika will argue with me on this and then we'll have a conflict later. And then, but anyways, I feel like I'm the only person in my home that values being on time. Nobody else in my house values being on time. And that creates conflict in my home because people wait until the last minute to know where their shoes are in my house. It's like, it's time to go. And it's like, they didn't think they were gonna need their shoes again. So they just, I don't know, they were just doing whatever they wanna do with their shoes. And they didn't look for their shoes last night thinking they had an early morning the next day. And we're about to get in the car five minutes late for school and they don't know where their shoes are. The most basic thing a human being could need. And they're not deliberately trying to annoy me. They just don't, they don't value being on time. And that's okay because they're kids and they're just looking out the window and life is passing them by and sometimes they're throwing their shoes out the window. And that is a true story. I have found my kids' shoes on the side of the road more than once. I've been driving home, I stopped, took a picture of shoes, texted it to Malika and I said, this looks like Logan's. And she says, those are Logan's, he's been looking for them everywhere. And they're on the side of the road. That's just how my family is. And when we're in conflict with someone, it's often because we value different things. 
It's not that they're annoying and they just need to get their stuff sorted out. It's simply that we have different values. And while I'm talking about my kids, it's so important that our children see us model healthy conflict. I know for for some of us, we say, we don't fight in front of the kids. Have that conversation in front of the kids, but most importantly, let them see how that ends, how that resolves with two people who still love each other and are still committed to one another. Let them see the result and let them overhear you say to one another, I love you. So you say, I value. I notice I value and then say, I feel, I feel. So you saw the phrase, when you, I feel. When you ask for their input and not mine, I feel. When you didn't invite me to lunch, I felt. When you gave me advice I didn't ask for, I felt. Not that you made me feel, because you're responsible for your own emotions. You're not saying you have power over my emotions. You say, I felt. I'm, I'm being honest with you. I, I feel jealous. I feel uh, I feel like I'm small. And so you're honest with them. When we talk about our feelings, it teaches our brain to be aware of our emotions. When someone says, when you, I feel, we don't say back to them, well, that's stupid. You shouldn't feel that way. We say, thanks for telling me. It's important for me to know how you feel. And I know that was a brave thing for you to do. And I'm so glad that you did it. And so so ultimately what we need to boil this down to is we need to be specific as well. So it's not like, I notice, I value, I feel, stop doing that. We need to be specific about the behavior we want to see in people. So I noticed you didn't take the trash out. I value being, things being clean. And when the trash isn't empty, I feel a little overwhelmed because I'm, I'm so, many doing, it's so busy doing other things. And that's just another thing that I have to do. So could you please try harder to not forget to take the trash out every night? And you're being very specific. If you've got to put a reminder on your phone to take the trash out, do that. And so not stop making me feel so overwhelmed all the time and please take out the trash. Just be specific about what you want to see in them. Now, these list and tips, they're good. Like we can go out and apply these like immediately and it would be fun. It would be awesome. Let's do this. It will make our relationships so much greater. I recognize that. I recognize that this is, a, this is a lot of teaching. But for some of us, there's still this deep healing, this deep change that needs to take place in our lives. Some of us are always going to end up sliding back into these behaviors that we've inherited from our families. In fact, you might be sitting here right now feeling a little overwhelmed. You might be thinking, that's all rosy and beautiful, but you have no idea where I've been. You have no idea who I'm married to. You have no idea the family that I grew up in. You have no idea how difficult my life has been. You can't relate to me. And how hard I have worked just to get to where I am. And changing something is not possible for a guy or a person or a woman like me. It's just not possible. I've tried to change the turn, the ship in a different direction. And it just does not work. You cannot relate to the home that I grew up in. But there is somebody who can relate to you and his name is Jacob. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you'll remember some context about Jacob's life. He comes from a long line of people who showed favoritism, a long line of people who had multiple wives, a long line of people who were dysfunctional, a long line of people who were just plain liars. 
In fact, Jacob's name means deceiver. It means liar. That's who he is. And Jacob, he stole his brother Esau. His older brother Esau had a birthright that belonged to him by birth. And he went before his blind father. Jacob went before his blind father, pretended to be Esau, and stole Esau's birthright. But all of this conflict and dysfunction actually predates Joseph. And I know that some of us can relate to that. You were born in the midst of it. And it's all that you've ever known. And the only way that you know how to survive is the way that your family has survived. The only way that you know how to win and get out of conflicts is the way that your family has done it. And Jacob is very good about being deceptive. He's very good at lying. He's very savvy. He's built up a ton of wealth for himself. But the whole time, for 20 years since he stole his brother Esau's birthright, he's been running from him. He's been running from his brother Esau ever since he stole from him. And Esau happens to be this powerful warrior, the Bible says. He's a great hunter and he's devastatingly hairy, like we've talked about. He's got like hair coming out of his ears when he was 15 years old, tragically. But you don't want to be on his bad side. And Jacob had been serving his oppressive and deceptive uncle Laban for this whole time. Desiring to get away. And it says this in Genesis 31.3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. That sounds great and all. Jacob is anxious to get away from his uncle. But that means going back to his family's land and that means actually confronting his kindred. That means confronting Esau for the first time in 20 years. This is him going back into conflict with a brother who likely wants to kill him. So Joseph sneaks away from his uncle, essentially, and he's about to cross paths with his brothers, with his brother. And it says this again in Genesis 32, verse 3. It says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. What he's saying in that statement is essentially, I have not been hiding from you. He's trying to frame this. I've been here the whole time. I haven't been like jumping from place to place to avoid you. I've been here the whole time. In verse five, it says, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. In other words, I know I stole your inheritance. I wanna make up for it. In verse six, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. You can imagine where Jacob's mind is going. I am dead And it says this in verse seven, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then that camp, then the camp that is left will escape. Jacob, again, is terrified. He's been able to swindle his way out of everything. He has no idea how he's gonna get through this. And in this situation has got him shook. And the night before he and his brother are about to meet, again, it says in verse 22, that same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And I love the part of the story where Jacob is left alone. Because that's where a lot of us need to be before God changes anything in us. Like we feel like we can hide behind our friends 
We feel like we can hide behind the people on our payroll. We feel like we can hide behind our network. We feel like we can hide behind our entourage. We feel like we can hide all of our dysfunction behind our stuff. Behold my stuff. And if somebody like criticizes us about the way that we live, we can say, oh really? How many Ferraris do you have in your garage? And that's the way we feel we can justify anything. And now all of that is gone and it's just him and his dysfunction. And this whole time, Jacob thought this was about an outer conflict. Jacob thought that this was about Jacob and an outside person and an outside situation. But God says, no, Jacob, this is an inner conflict. Some of the things that we think are about us or about them and about situations and people outside of us, if I could just fix that. God says, no, it's actually about you. It's about what's happening inside of you. And God will intentionally lead us on a journey where we're going to have to deal with the conflict. And he's going to intercept us halfway through that journey and begin doing a work in us. He's going to say to us, I know I called you to deal with this outer thing, but in your obedience to do that, I'm going to meet you about this inner thing. And Jacob meets this man that people say, some people, some scholars say, might be a Christophany, might be the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. But we read in Hosea, Hosea says that it's an angel. He meets this angel. He has this moment with this angel and they don't even exchange words. This angel walks up and like a matter of fact, they fight and that's it. It's like, and then there was a man and they wrestled and stuff. And it just seems super weird to us But we have to remember how Jacob's story began. It says this in Genesis 25, 21 through 22. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, that's Jacob and Esau's mother, his wife conceived. The children, Jacob and Esau, struggled together within her. Some translations say they wrestled together within her. This man was wrestling in the womb. He was born to wrestle. A strange man appears on a bridge, he gonna wrestle him. That's just what he's gonna do. And he starts wrestling with this man who shows up. God meets him in his dysfunction. God says, you wanna wrestle? That's what you do? Bro, let's wrestle. God meets him right there in the middle of his dysfunction. It's as though God is saying, this has been your life. You've been wrestling your entire life. You've been relying on your self-sufficiency. This is going to be a different ending because you don't need another win. What you need is a major identity shift. God meets him to do a deep work in him. God sometimes leads us into the waters of conflict in order to do a greater work within us. You see, Jacob's eyes are on Esau, but God's eyes are on Jacob. That's what God wants to mess with. That's what God needs to fix. That's what God needs to resolve and redeem right now. It says in verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God is so faithful that even in our dysfunction, he is not afraid of that. He doesn't want us to be defined by our past any longer, defined by our parents, defined by our history, even defined by our personality any longer. Jacob's deception was literally in his bones. He was named after it. It was deception even in the womb. 
And God had a blessing for him. He had a new future for him. He had a new name for him. In verse 29, it says, then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his limp. Some of us, we need to lay down our identities. We need to lay down that deceiver identity. Some of us are still holding on to the words that somebody has spoke over us or still holding on to the words that someone never spoke over us. And all we're longing for is for somebody to say, I'm proud of you and I love you. Some of us didn't, simply didn't have parents in our lives and we've become defined by what we did not have or we've become defined by what we did have but was painful. But we've been defined by the disappointment and the words spoken over us and we've been carrying them with us our entire lives. And some of us, we go and start a new family and we we say, it's gonna be different with my family. But the older you get, you're like, where is this stuff coming from? And you realize that all this stuff is still in us. And some of us, we need to receive that new name today. We need to step out of the name Jacob and we need to limp into the family of Christ because there is blessing attached to your name because Jesus paid for it on the cross. And in that moment, Jacob received that name. That moment he received that name, his direct descendants and spiritual descendants, us, would be changed for an eternity. Israel means contends with God, chosen for a purpose. What if God wants to give you a new name for the descendants, for the generations that are coming after you? That fight, that inheritance, that blessing is not just for you, but for the thousands that will come after you. God wants to do something deep in us that would profoundly change us, but it's never just for us. A lot of us have been wrestling. We think this is so hard. Why is this so hard? It's just me. Why can't I get over this? Because you're not just fighting for you. You are fighting for the generations that will come after you. If that fight feels like it's harder than it should be, it's because you are fighting for that generation that is coming after you. That provision, that blessing, that hope is bigger than just for you. It's for the people coming after you. God doesn't just want to name your sin. God isn't content saying you're a liar and you're an adulterer. What God wants to do for you is he wants to name you. You were God's idea. And I know that some of us, we've been told that we were an accident. You're the youngest in your family. Guess what? You were most likely an accident. I'm just gonna let you know right now. Some of us, we were born out of pain. You're born out of pain. And if you you think, and that's been your narrative. But I wanna speak this over you, no matter who you are today, no matter where you've come from, you were God's idea. He had you in mind when he created the earth. And he's so glad that you are here and he can't wait to change your name. And yes, life is a fight. There are a lot of hardships in our lives, but as we go through those, man, we rejoice all the more for that pain and affliction in my life is shaping me, growing me into the man that God has designed me to be. On the inside out, God has a plan for your life. You are not an accident, you are his idea. And this morning, no matter what you've brought with you today, no matter what you thought your identity was, no matter how hard this series has been for you, I promise you when we do this hard work of saying, Jesus, I want that abundant life that you offered to me. I want that deep down to my bones. I wanna work out my salvation with fear and trembling. God, I wanna become more like Jesus Christ. 
All the while recognizing that what Jesus did on that cross was he died in my place because I cannot live a life like that. But all the more, I will live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to be a people who say we follow Jesus that actually follow Jesus. And if you're in this room today and you've never had a relationship with the creator of the universe who has a plan for you, a purpose for you, a blessing for you, a new name for you, a new destiny for you, a new future for you. He says, I have a new hope for you. And his name is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that today you can make Jesus part of your life, that everything you need to live the Christian life can come inside of you today. That Jesus will take up residence in you. And when you can't be that patient person in that conflict, when you can't be that person that's just all ears and no mouth, Jesus will be that person for you. If you've never had a relationship with him, the Bible tells us that if you would have this conversation with him in the sincerity of your heart, that Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe my sin separates me from you and I believe that you paid a price for my sin and I can't wait to be called a child of God even if I limp into that family. The Bible tells us that if you believe Jesus died for you, was buried and rose from the grave three days later, conquering the power of sin over your life and giving you a new name, that your name will be written in the book of life and that Jesus right now is preparing a place for you to live with him for an eternity. And we can experience that abundant life right now today. Let's pray together. Father, we're just so grateful for the work that you're doing through our lives. God, in a strange way, we're, we're thankful for the conflict. We're, we're thankful for those moments that we have to really truly measure how much like Jesus we're becoming. God, your word tells us that everyone loves their friends. Everyone loves their family. How much harder is it to love your enemies? God, I pray that you would make us those kinds of people that you would make us more like Jesus Christ right now. God, we wanna lift up those whose new life is beginning in this room right now in this moment, those whose new life is Jesus Christ. God, we're so grateful for the love that you have for us, for the way that Jesus has changed everything. We love you and we praise you and pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Can we give some God, God some glory this morning? God is good. Well, if you've given your life to Jesus this morning, we would love to know about it. Um, we're gonna have some people up front who would love the opportunity to pray with you, to get to know you, get to know your name and go on this journey with you. You can let us know that you've accepted Christ as your savior. We wanna get you resourced to begin this journey with him. You can put that on a connection card or anything. We just, we wanna go on this journey with you. We're just so glad that you're a part of this journey with us. That being said, if, you, if you're able, if you would stand with me, we're gonna